0: Hey, well, Katie, thank you so much for leading this morning. And kids, thank you for being here. That was great. I really appreciate that. Um, it is no doubt a different season, but a great season still to celebrate that, the beauty of that. So guys, thanks so much. and for. Those of you joining online, thank you for being with us online. Uh, welcome to Christmas Sunday here at GPC. Again, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor at Grace Point Church, and I'm excited to have you with us this morning as we conclude um, a series that we've been calling Faith, Hope, and Love. And you're, you're catching us on the back end, the final, the finish of this thing, where we have been um, talking about faith, and then we're going to talk about hope, and then we're going to talk about love here today. And to, to get us there quickly, I just want to reiterate quickly, just by way of quick review where we've been in this series, we've, we've kind of set up a big idea that life is full, and I think you all know this life is full of both tragedy and triumph in fact you can't have triumph without tragedy as much as we might prefer to get rid of that we can't have that and in this series what we said so far is that if faith is the story of triumph then betrayal is the story of tragedy that faith invites you to believe that god exists and he is good but betrayal is what you experience all the time when you have relationships that break or even wondering if god is there or present for you and betrayal invites you to think of life as tragedy. Same for hope. Hope, if hope is the story of triumph, then powerlessness is the story of tragedy. That when your hopes are not realized, you begin to realize that you have no control over future disappointments, and you begin to feel powerless thinking this might just be the way life is. And as we get into Christmas Sunday here this morning, I want to talk about love, and I want to talk about it from um, one of the wisest people that has ever walked the planet, and that is Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss wrote this great story that's been turned into a movie, The The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. Right? And many of you have seen this movie and, and uh, have read this story. And it's a great little story. And this is a perfect um, illustration of the triumph of Christmas, but the tragedy of the Grinch. <laughs> the, the triumph of the joy and delight of Christmas, but the tragedy of someone who doesn't quite get it and can't quite track with all that Christmas can be. And somewhere along the line in The, the Grinch Who Stole Christmas, we read this from Dr. Seuss as he's trying to describe the Grinch to us. He says this, the Grinch hated Christmas. The whole Christmas season. Now, please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. It could be, perhaps, that his shoes were too tight. Or it could be that his head wasn't screwed on just right. But, then he says this. I think the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. If you have ever felt the loss of love You are feeling what the Grinch feels when his heart is two sizes too small. If you have ever felt that someone should have loved you when they walked out the door, you are invited to have a smaller heart that protects you and pulls away from engaging, loving, and serving other people. And so this morning, I'm going to say it this way. If love is the story of triumph, then ambivalence is the story of tragedy. That if love is a story of triumph, if you want a life of triumph and redemption, love is an invitation to live in that way. But on the other side, ambivalence invites you to be torn in two, to not care quite as much, to kind of look and say, well, I can choose to engage or disengage, and it doesn't necessarily matter. Ambivalence is that space where I feel like I could go here or I could go there. You have a need. I could care about it. I might not. It almost doesn't matter. And I begin to lack love. And the reason for that often is because my heart has become two sizes too small. Dr. Seuss puts it in a great way. What I want to invite you to think about this morning In particular, is this question. Which story is going to be yours? Love or ambivalence? Love or ambivalence? Because ambivalence invites us, it's a tempting invitation that invites our heart to future um, freedom from pain by deadening our engagement with one another. Ambivalence invites us to just step back and disconnect a little bit. And it looks like a safe and beautiful invitation, but it is full of difficulty, difficulty, and challenge. And what I want to do is take you to a passage of scripture this morning that will help us see this and step into this it's a small little passage in a small little letter that john one of the followers of jesus wrote and in the first epistle that he wrote the first letter that he wrote not the Gospel of John, but in 1 John 3. That's where I want to go with you. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn there to 1 John chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew near you. If you're online, you can just look that up on your YouVersion app or something else that you have there at home. Um, but 1 John chapter 3 is where we're going to be. We're just going to look briefly at two verses as we consider the power of love and ambivalence in what love looks like. Because at Christmas, I'm convinced of this that what we should celebrate is that Jesus came in person, in flesh, to be that expression of love to us, to be the safe place that we should experience and see love. But my life and your life is full, it's full of the narrative that says, what if you enter a relationship and the person doesn't reciprocate? What if they just use you for a little while? What if they divorce you? What if they walk away? And all of the questions come about how far I should engage. With one another, and even how far I should engage in my love with God, and so in First John chapter three, again, that's going to be in the right two thirds of your Bible. You can find, your, find it in the table of contents. But in First John chapter three, John just writes a really brief statement. We're just going to look at a brief statement here, and, and kind of you know pull that out a little bit. Here's what he says: First John three sixteen. He says, "This is how we know what love is." This is a great introduction. If you're wondering how in the world do we even get a handle on what love should be, because love is such a big idea and a big concept, for Christians, at least, this is where John puts it. He said, if you're a Christian and you're wondering what love should look like, here's what it is. This is how we know what love looks like. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And then he goes on, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So he just introduces this. He's like, here's how, here's what love is. Love is Jesus. Before we get into what Jesus did, I just wanna pause on this simple idea. He says, what love is, love is Jesus. Love is Jesus. So Christmas time, Jesus has come as a baby born in Bethlehem. Love has come, love has come. He said, this is how you know what love is. And the first thing he does is turn to Jesus. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. And then what did Jesus do Jesus laid down his life for us. Powerful thing. So in that, we see that the core of love is going to be the self-sacrificial giving. In other places, like in Romans, we see that Jesus, even while we were still sinners, even while we were still sinners, died for us, gave up his life for us, that he engaged you and engaged me with this kind of other-centered love that is so powerful and so almost ridiculous to understand. That even when I resisted, when I pushed back, that this is how Christians orient to love is by looking at Jesus, who at Christmas was born. Ultimately, he came to die for us, for you and for me. And then he finishes the verse this way, and we ought, he says, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. It only makes sense, at least theoretically, that if this is the basis of Christianity, that Christians put their faith in Jesus, that Christians should do the very thing that their Savior did, that we should therefore love one another, that we should love in the same way to lay down my life for you and you lay down your life for me. Now that's a big ask, isn't it? That's an incredibly huge ask, especially when I have an agenda for my life and you have an agenda for yours. I have goals and dreams and you have goals and dreams and sometimes they go in varying ways and what Jesus invites us to do is to lay down my future and my hopes for you, and that you would lay down your future and your hopes for me. This is a big deal. This is a big ask, but but John says this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And it's in this space of wrestling with this question of, can I love you and can you love me? that we begin to be introduced to this concept of, of ambivalence. You see, one of the things that I've always been taught, and I've always thought that the opposite of love is hate. That's what I've heard, right? And I don't think that's altogether false, but I would say that it's simpler than that. And I think C.S. Lewis, even in the Screwtape Letters, writes about this idea that, that actually the opposite of love isn't necessarily hate, it's just ambivalence. If we can get you just not to care, I don't even need to get you to hate, I just need to get you not to care right like if you want to walk in here and just not care that's good enough if you want to walk out into life and just not really engage that's enough i don't need you to join a hate group i just need you to join a not caring group you know what i'm saying because then you're ineffective then i'm ineffective ambivalence is that space ambivalence is the enemy of love because ambivalence says it's going to be okay it's going to be okay to disengage and just simply not care as much About a week and a half ago, I got a phone call from a a man in our community. His niece, his niece is in elementary school. And what he told me on the phone, he said, listen, he said, "My, my niece was dropped off at my father's house by her mom. Essentially abandoned to the grandfather. The mom pulled away and said, I can't handle this kid anymore, and essentially dropped her off and said, good luck raising her, I'm out. To which then, after several weeks, this uncle is calling me and saying, I don't know what to do because I am overwhelmed and my grandfather's overwhelmed, but there needs to be some help and hope for this young girl, to which I agree. This uncle is is at the crossroads of love and ambivalence, He wants to love and stay engaged, but at the same time, he has a job that he has to attend to. He has his own family and he has to ask the question, should I care enough to lay down my energy and agenda to get involved in this girl's life or not? Because her mom didn't. Her mom chose ambivalence to just give up and not care. And he's calling me, asking me, what should I do and what resources are available in this community for help in this situation? This is the intersection of love and ambivalence. Am I going to care enough or am I going to just simply unplug? Ambivalence shows up all of the time. It shows up all the time in your life and all the time in my life. Three places it shows up. First of all, it shows up whenever you reach your goals. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but when you set a financial goal and you reach it, you realize what you're actually wanting was something much deeper than that. And it can be Empty to meet your goals when you set a marriage goal like I want to get married I want to have a spouse and hopefully we'll live happily ever after and then you get married and you realize Wait now we have to stay married, right? (laughs) Now we, we do this thing day after day after day and you get your goal But you realize there's more to it once you reach your goals Ambivalence can kick in because you realize what i'm actually reaching for is heaven and I can't have it yet and it can deaden your heart to desire Ambivalence shows up too, secondly, when you use your gifts. I don't know if you thought about it this way, but whenever you use your gifts, there's a risk that you will be used, not just that you use your gifts. In my little world, here's how this works. Every now and then people say, um, will say to me, hey, listen, um, you know, what you had to say Sunday really encouraged me here or there, okay? But I've also had some of the same people after a year or two say, what you said on Sunday is why we're also leaving the church. To which I realize that over time, over time, any gift that you have, any gift that you have when you use it, you realize that people are using, can use that gift and just use you, not necessarily love you. That you can be used and I can be used when my gifts are used, but I'm not necessarily loved for who I am. I'm loved for the gift that I have. Moms can relate to this. (laughs) Dads can relate to this. Moms, if you continue to provide for your kids, but they don't show gratitude and thankfulness to you over time, you can feel like, am I just here so that I can provide food on the table, clean clothes? Is that what I'm here for? Or is there more? Am I just being used? If you're a generous person who has given donation after donation after donation, but you're never really loved for who you are, you can feel used in who you are. And ambivalence can kick in and you can be... Challenge to disengage. Thirdly, ambivalence shows up when you go through suffering. When you go through pain, ambivalence invites you to stop and give it away, just like the mom of that little girl in our community in elementary school. She was going through great pain and suffering, and so she decided to pack it in. Let me ship this kid off to grandpa, and I'm out. Ambivalence during suffering shows up because it invites you to stop fighting it invites you to say, it's not worth a future where I'm gonna have to love people who don't love me back. I'm gonna have to love someone who may not ever resonate deeply with my, my, my love. They're gonna push back from me. Ambivalence in suffering and pain invites you to, to push back. The problem with it is this, that when you push away in suffering and pain, you're always gonna end up with this, get this, boredom. You are gonna be bored. You're gonna be bored with life because you're gonna give up on the fight. And ambivalence shows up right in that space. And let me say this about ambivalence before I move on. Whether you realize it or not, and here's something that I've come to a great realization of, ambivalence has as its root, shame. The root of ambivalence is shame. Shame is a living nightmare for people to live with. Here's what I mean by that. Shame is this space that exists in your heart and in mine of a place where I don't want you to see of a way of things that I have done in my past, ways that I even think right now, things that I know that you don't know about me, and maybe I don't know about you. Shame is in marriages. It's in families. Parents have this. Adults, kids, teens. Unresolved shame sends this message to you and to me that you are not lovable for who you really are. Shame is sending you the message regularly. It's safer, it's safer to be distant from people than to expose yourself to shame and vulnerability. And when it's safer to be distant because it's the only way that I can relate to you, then it is an incredible challenge to do what John asks us to do in 1 John 3, 16 and 18. It's an incredible challenge to actually love and engage with you. Because when I have shame, it sends the message that I am not worth being loved. Therefore, I cannot love you. And so when John writes in 1 John 3:16, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And then look at verse 18. He says it this way. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is a beautiful world that he paints here. Oh, that we would not just love with, with words, but in actions and in, and in truth, that there could be a truth to the inner part of my life and a truth to the inner part of your life, that you would feel the love of people in actions, not just in words. You know, last night we got a, a knock on the door around five o'clock and someone dropped off a Christmas ham for us. Small thing, maybe, but an act of love, an unselfish act of caring and love. I already got a ham, so now I guess I'm just saying I'll take a turkey next if you want to, if you're interested, maybe we'll take some hamburger later on. Maybe if you shot a deer, you're looking to get rid of that. I'm just saying, there's possibilities. But it's not just words, but it's actually actions, deeds, right? Wouldn't it be beautiful? The problem is, it's difficult for me to do that, difficult for me to do that if I have a deep level of shame and if I have an ambivalence, I'm not sure if I should engage with you or if you should engage with me. So I wanna ask this question. We talk about love and ambivalence here this morning. How does love win over ambivalence? How does love win over ambivalence? How does it win over ambivalence? Not just in our heads, but actually in real life. And I wanna say this, by learning, this is gonna sound weird right away, by learning to kiss the waves, to which you would say, that makes no sense at all. What are we talking about? Many years ago, Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, I've learned to kiss the waves that cast me upon the rock of ages. Incredible quote if you've never heard it before. I've I've learned to kiss the waves that cast me upon the rock of ages. I want you to imagine that, that you're swimming in a sea, if you will, that has certainly all of a sudden gone rough. And the waves carry you and push you and you are struggling and you are wondering where you're going to end up, even if you are going to survive at all, because the current is too strong and it pulls you where it pulls you. You don't know what's coming next and you are cast here and there. And then all of a sudden, bam, you hit a rock and you're thrown on it. And it is both painful and life-giving at the same time, because now you have a place to hold onto in the middle of the storms of life. To which Spurgeon would say, this is that opportunity for you and for me to kiss the wave that has brought me pain but has brought me to a safe place to cling to the rock of ages. That as you go through life in which you are constantly betrayed... (laughs) You constantly experience powerlessness. You're constantly invited, honestly, to care a little bit less about the people around you, to look at the people that you work with within your families, within your neighborhoods, and say, you know, someone should care about them. Someone really should. But I have to go to work. I've got a family to raise. I've got a future to prepare for. And I hope somebody does something about that. And ambivalence invites you just to care a little bit less. A deep voice of shame inside of your own soul says, you know what, you're not even lovable to begin with because of all that you've done that people don't even know about. So just a reminder, you're not worth love. And people aren't even going to receive your love to begin with. It's in these storms that when we are cast upon the rock, we learn to kiss the wave and say, thank you for the betrayal that I've experienced. Thank you for the loss of relationship that I've experienced. Thank you, God, for bringing into my life the kind of wave that cast me to the only safe place in the middle of my storm. Because during this season, here's what I would say about Christmas and what God has done through Christ, that by sending Jesus to be born at Christmas, God placed a rock in the middle of our storms. By sending Jesus to be born at Christmas, God placed this rock in the middle of our storms. He placed Jesus right in the center of humanity, said, I'm gonna give to you this little baby to be born, that this will be a rock of love. This is how we know what love is, John writes. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. He died for you and he died for me. This is how we know what love is. And at Christmas time, God drops this rock right in our space. And let me go further with it and say this that love invites us to cling to the rock of Christ during our storms. Love invites you and invites me to cling to the rock of Christ during our storms. Here's what I mean by that. That if you have ever, if you have ever gone through your life, and you are hoping that in the storm that you're in, in the financial storm that you're in, the relational storm that you're in, and the, the, the betrayal you've experienced, the loneliness you've experienced, the depression that you have been in, and the challenges you have faced, if you have hoped that a little bit more would save you, a little bit more time with friends, maybe a little bit more money and margin on the side, a little bit more vacation, maybe a new phone will help you, maybe a new house will help you, maybe a new job will help you, maybe a change or a transition will help you, and you're clinging in the middle of this storm for something more solid. Here's what you will ultimately find, and many of you have already found this to be true. A little more never calms the storm. A little more just deepens our own disdain when we realize that all that we are hoping for that isn't Christ doesn't hold in the storm. That the good news at Christmas is that you don't have to strive anymore. That the current will take you where it takes you until it brings you to the rock of Christ. And that it is that rock of Christ at Christmas time that we cling to to say this is how we know what love is that Christ died for us. He was born in the flesh, and he died for you, and he died for me. So if you have never experienced a relationship with Jesus in that way, at this Christmas time, I want to invite you to that. At Grace Point, we know and we say that your, we think that your best future and our hope for you is that you would come to know Jesus Christ in that way, that your shame, your striving would find a place to rest, And we'd love to talk to you more about that. Now, if you're here and you're listening online and you've already made that decision to follow Christ, you've placed your faith in him, you're trying to cling to that rock in the middle of the storm, let me just encourage you this way. That love from God, love from God does not possess people, but engages them. Choosing to get involved when you could go another way. That love from God realizes, you know, all the people who've walked into and walked out of my life, All the people who said at one time, my gift was great, and now the other side are saying, my gift is not so great. All the people in your life who've left you, who've moved on from you, we've never possessed them in the first place. Love says, I don't possess you. I don't possess you. But when I'm given the option of, am I going to care about you? Am I going to engage you? Or am I going to say, you might cause me more pain, so I'm just going to step back. Love says, don't choose ambivalence. Don't choose to disengage. Don't be like the mom who dropped her elementary daughter off at the grandfather and wiped the hands and said, this suffering and pain is too much for me. I can't handle it, I'm out. Chose ambivalence and chose ultimately a line of tragedy, a heart that will grow cold and disengaged. Love says, you don't possess people, I don't possess people to begin with. Engage, nonetheless. I don't possess you. And you don't possess me, but I can love you, and you can love me. In spite of what future pain will come, and mark my words, it will come. If you're going to choose to love, there will be more pain. But when we learn to kiss the wave that brings us to that rock of Christ, we see that in that love, in that engagement, I've actually found the hope of the gospel. And at time, I want to encourage you. There are people in your family, people in your community, people in your neighborhood who need the engagement of Christians who have found the rock in the middle of the storm. There are people who do not deserve your love, but who need it. There are people who will walk out again in your life, but it doesn't matter. When we have the opportunity to engage and care, Christians choose love because Christ did for you. And for me. And so, I hope that your heart doesn't grow two sizes too small ever, but that at Christmas we can see the beauty of the love of Christ born at Christmas as a baby come to you and to me. Merry Christmas, everybody. Dear God, thanks for the time this morning and the time to stop and look at the love of Christ born in this stable, and I pray that you would give us the courage to love when we could choose ambivalence, that we would look around and realize that, man, it's going to cost me something to engage with my family, particularly those who believe differently about a number of things these days. That I could choose ambivalence and not caring quite as much, but that doesn't seem to be the way to go. That seems to be the line of tragedy. May our hearts not grow two sizes too small, and may suffering, when it crashes us onto the rock of Christ, may it renew us, and may we kiss the wave that brings us To the solid footing of this rock of ages so we thank you for the good hope of christmas the beauty of jesus born in the stable and i pray that you would help us to be people who love no matter what we love you thank you for the time this morning in jesus name